everybody. I'm Michael, and this is the eighth episode of Bibliophile Adventures, and I'm going to be talking about a book by Neil Stevenson titled Seven Eves. Now, Neil Stevenson is one of those writers, kind of like I mentioned in the first episode when I was talking about Piers Anthony, that doesn't matter if I hadn't read a book by him, I knew who he was, I knew something about the book's he put out just by being one uh, uh, avid book reader, going to libraries and bookstores, and having worked worked in a bookstore, um, I knew his books from from that experience, and I, I knew he was a kind of a big deal, and that someday I, I probably would get around to reading him. Now Stevenson himself is an American author. He was born in 1959 in Maryland, uh, educated at, uh, I think, it Boston University. He started out um, focusing, majoring in physics, but switched to geology, and then minored in physics, graduated in uh, 1981, and put his first novel out in 1984, and has been publishing ever since, 1984. And he's written a lot of books. And I always knew his books mostly fell into the kind of a science fiction world, but like heavy on the science and uh, the first book I actually tried to read by him was several years ago. It was the novel uh, Cryptonomicon that came out in 1999. And I started it. I liked it. I liked where it was going. But it's one of those I fell away from reading. I was on a trip at the time when I started it and being distracted and things happening. I just kind of fell away from it and never went back to it. And thought I would someday again because it was, it was an enjoyable enough read I remembered to, to continue. But I just I just didn't. And there's another thing, he writes a really big book, so either you better be committed to him or it's going to be a long slog. But the reason I decided to start this book, it came at a weird time. I've always been interested in history, and same time, I'm always interested in things that what's going to happen around the next turn in our history, what's coming for us, uh, kind of. And recently, I had been on a look in deep history, deep past. Um, the spread of human beings throughout the throughout the world um, over the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, um, looking at things like when was the earliest people moving into the North America, South America. Uh, it seems like we keep finding out that people actually have been moving, living here earlier and earlier, kind of turning up the upside down the previous thought that only a certain period of time and no earlier than that had humans lived in America, the Americas. And I, that seems to be the trend around the world. I'm, I'm not speaking as an uh, expert on this. I'm speaking as a person that's interested in it. And I'm trying to follow and keep up with that. But that also led me into different things about the importance of things in our solar system that have impacted uh, human development, evolution on the planet, as that, and as much as just life itself and the many ex mass extinctions that have happened over time and a lot of that has to do with huge impacts with things from our solar system within the last uh 7500 years there have been what they call at least they call young craters they are about a uh, up to 4.5 kilometers wide it's maybe one of them it's the one that's they're, they're kind of not sure if it was an impact or for something else but they're all big objects um then there are the large craters that go from 10,000 years ago to 100 million years ago. And those are some of the really, really bad ones. 
Um, one of those was up to 14 kilometers wide. Um, anyhow, my point is, is there's things out there <laughs> floating around in space. And, my, you know, there's a curiosity of, well, what would happen if we had a major impact event here? Uh, I'm on a, a podcast with my cousin Dave called 2BT, and we frequently have kind of talked about these kind of things. You know, what if there's a big EMP that wipes out electronics? What, 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 what if there was a major impact? Um, you know, kind of going down the Graham Hancock Avenue, don't throw stones. There's some interesting stuff in his books. He's got some interesting ideas. Um, it's just, just curious. And I, I, I've come to the conclusion personally that we're not in a very good position for a major disaster to happen, I don't believe. Um, and, uh, just for instance, here in, um, the, let's see, what is this foundation? B612 Foundation, private nonprofit foundation headquartered in Mill Valley, California, dedicated to planetary science and planetary defense against asteroids and other near earth objects, um, led by mainly by scientists and former astronauts and engineers. So. They, they announced in April 2018, it's 100% certain we will be hit by a devastating asteroid, but we're not 100% certain when. Well, that's uplifting, I guess. Not at all. Uh, physicist Stephen Hawking, in his final book, Brief Answers to the Big Questions, that came out in 2018, he said that he considered the asteroid collision to be the biggest threat to the planet. Um, then June 2018, United States National Science Technology Council warned that America was completely unprepared for a major asteroid impact event. And uh, so on and so on. You can find different things like that. According to a testimony in Congress in 2013, NASA would require at least five years of preparation before a mission to intercept an asteroid could be launched. So that's um, if we did see something that was on near-Earth collision that could possibly be a threat because, you know, these really major rocks out there in space can have also satellite rocks traveling with them um, in the same same route. And like I said, I'm not an expert on this. It's just speculation. It's just thought. But it made me curious. Well, then the recommendation came to read Neil Stevenson's Seven Eats. Now, a little bit more about Stevenson and his publishing history before we get into the book. Um, and I'm gonna, it's going to be a difficult cult book for me to talk about because I really don't want to spoil it a lot, but I'm going to get into some of the big issues that he writes about, and uh, then I'll close out with how I would recommend it and what I feel about it, um, his writing, and if I'm interested in reading it again or if I'm interested in uh, reading anything else about it. Like I said, his first book he put out in 1984, then he put out another novel in 88 called Zodiac. The first book, by the way, was The Big U. It supposedly a satire of campus life. Uh, Zodiac came out in 88. It's a story of an environmentalist uncovering a conspiracy involving industrialist polluters in Boston Harbor. Uh, Snow Crash, which I do have a copy of. It was a British Science Fiction Association nominee in 1993 and a Clark Award nominee in 94. Um, it covers history, linguistics, anthropology, archaeology, religion, computer science, politics, cryptography, memetics, and philosophy. Like I said, he's a guy that has, he writes these big books with all these big ideas. And see, that sounds like really interesting to me. I might have to actually, since I have a copy, I might have to dive into that. He wrote a couple of books with an uncle 
of his. One was Interface that came out in 94. Um, and then he also put out another one called The Cobweb with him in 1996. And let's see, 1995, he won the Hugus, the Hugus, the Hugo and the Locust Science Fiction Awards for, in 1996 for The Diamond Age or A Young Lady's Illustrated Primer. He also was a Nebula, Campbell, and Clark Awards nominee in 1996. Now, that's an interesting book. It's a set, it's a coming-of-age story focusing on a young girl named Nell that's set in a future world in which nanotechnology affects all aspects of life. Sounds really interesting. Also, uh, the book I told you about um, that I actually tried to read was the 1999's Cryptonomicon, or I'm sorry, Cryptonomicon, uh, set in two different time periods. Um, one of the time periods was World War II era, where there are cold breakers and tactical uh, deception operatives. And then the other time period set in the late 1990s with characters that were, some of them, descendants of the earlier time period. And it goes also into cryptologic, telecom, computer technology, all this kind of technical stuff, which really interesting. I might have to get back into that someday. Um, but never got through that. Uh, let's see, what else? Where was I? Uh, he followed that up. And this is a first of this book here is one I might really want to get into is Quicksilver 2003 it's the volume one of the Baroque cycle it's where it's actually a historical novel um, but he's also dealing with a lot of these big issues of technology and knowledge and things like that uh, he followed that with volume two in 2004 called the confusion uh, volume two of the uh, Baroque cycle um, both of those books the volume one Quicksilver won the Clark Award is a Arthur C. Clarke Award, British Award, given for Best Science Fiction Novel, published in the United Kingdom. He got that in 2004, and he was a Locus Science Fiction, Locus Magazine Science Fiction Award uh, nominee for Best Science Fiction Novel. He was nominated for that in 2004. He won the the Confusion, won the Locus Science Fiction Award in 2005, and then 2004. So all these three big books came out one after another in 2003 2004 and then 2004 and i was working in book selling at that time i remember these just these big books coming in and hitting the bestseller list and uh, flying out of the stores um he, he won for the third book he won the the locust science fiction award in 2005 he won the prometheus award for it in 2005 and he was a clark award nominee again in 2005 uh he also put out another book in 2008 called anathem it's a science fiction novel also that has themes about quantum mechanics and philosophical debate between platonic realism and nominalism stuff i'm not really i'm i'd be interested in reading it just to learn about it and that's one of the thing i learned after reading this book is even if you don't necessarily like the story you're better be set because you're going on going to learn some really real world things some big things that you might not have ever heard about uh and the 2010s, he became part of this group of writers that started a, a project called the Mongoliad. It's a historical, somewhat historical series of books written together with a bunch of different writers where they all contribute. And it's set in a world similar to ours. I actually had the first volume of it on my Kindle. It looks really interesting. In 2011, he put out, and I don't know how you say the name of this book. On the cover... It's spelled out R-E-A-M-D-E, but the letters M and E are highlighted, so it makes it stand out to my 
head as if it should be a readme file that you'd find um, or reamed also. So I, I know it's, it's got to be some kind of a play on words. I haven't read the book. It's interesting, though, because it's set, like I said, in uh, uh, this online role-playing game world, which interests me. Reading about it, look it up. I don't want to go too much into it right now, but it seems like a very interesting book. Like I said, it came out in 2011, another really big book, 1,056 pages. Um, that was followed up by the book we're talking about today, uh, Seven Eves, published in 2015, Hugo Award for Best Novel nominee. Apparently, unfortunately, did not win, but it got nominated. Hey, so good for him. 2017, and um, uh, with a writing partner, Nicole Galland, he wrote The Rise and Fall of Dodo. D.O.D.O. Um, hadn't heard much about it. And then another book that is very interesting to me. Because it just came out this year, and it also involves some of the elements of Reamed or Read Me, uh, is Fall or Dodge in Hell that came out just this year, 2019. And it goes, it has some characters from uh, that previous novel. So it's kind of like a sequel, even though I don't know if it's necessarily supposed to be considered a sequel, but it does utilize characters from that. I think I read somewhere that it even pulls characters or mentions the characters from some other books, so it kind of ties things together. I've seen good reviews and bad reviews of it, but um, we might get back to that later. But like I said, today today's about seven eves. Um, it was published in May nineteenth, two thousand fifteen, by William and Morrow. Uh, I'm sorry, William Morrow. I believe he's put out almost all his books, or a multitude of his books have been published by that publisher. Um, Eight hundred eighty pages, big book. I've read it on my Kindle, and I also went back and forth to an audio version uh, to finish it. And um, so here's the thing. I told you I had an interest in what would happen if we were faced with a cataclysmic impact all of a sudden and not being very well prepared for it. Or even if we were kind of thinking about it and being prepared for it, what would happen? Well, he takes it and ups it a level. And like I said, I do not want to... <laughs> I don't want to spoil this too much. Um, first, I'm going to get into what the actual book marketed it itself as. So just one second here. So right away, I'm going here to look at, if you hear a piano in the background, that's my daughter. So maybe she'll play a song for us. Um, I went to Amazon. I'm going to look at their information for the book. Uh Right off the bat, it's promoted as uh, President Obama had it on his su summer 2016 reading list. And Bill Gates recommended in summer six 2016 as one of only five books by recommended as must-reads that year by Bill Gates. Down a little bit here. Well, they used to be a lot better about giving a summary about what the book is about. My apologies. I'll edit this out. What the heck? Let's go to Goodreads. Yeah. Okay, well, Amazon failed me. But here's the Goodreads, which Amazon owns, uh, summary for the book. And this is a really good summary. What would happen if the world were ending? A 
catastrophic event renders the Earth a ticking time bomb. In a feverish race against inevitable, nations around the globe band together to devise an ambitious plan to ensure the survival of humanity far beyond our atmosphere and outer space. But the complexities and unpredictability of human nature, coupled with unforeseen challenges and dangers, threaten the intrepid pioneers until only a handful of survivors remain. And then, and I'm going to go ahead and jump to this big... Because I did not read a summary about it before I uh, I jumped into the book. Uh, it jumps ahead 5,000 years. 5,000 years later, their progenies, seven distinct races, now three billion strong, embark on yet another audacious journey into the unknown to an alien world utterly transformed by cataclysm and time, Earth. And it went, uh, goes on to praise him as a writer of dazzling genius and imaginative vision. He combines science, philosophy, technology, psychology, and literature in a magnificent work of speculative fiction that offers a portrait of a future that is both extraordinarily, I'm sorry, extraordinary and eerily recognizable. So yeah, that kind of, that's like the big picture sales pitch for the book. Um, I kind of like the fact that I went into it not knowing uh, much about it other than that we faced a, a really severe catastrophe and how we were going to deal with it um what he does and i'm not going to try to i'm not going to spoil too much about actual things that happen but what he does is he follows a group of characters around and there's somebody on the space station already there's some scientist that his job is he's kind of a analog for uh analogous to uh neil degrasse tyson i'd say like really uh intelligent knowledgeable scientist that's also really good at being on tv and radio and podcasts and explaining things to people like me so we kind of understand what's happening and then the cast keeps growing and growing and growing and basically what happens one day out of nowhere something they call the agent strikes the moon and the moon explodes into a handful of pieces and then those pieces start breaking um the scientist, let's, we'll call him Dub. His last name is Dubois. Um, he's really on top of things, and he realizes pretty quick, and he's an advisor to the president. He realizes very quickly what's going to happen, as do many scientists all around the world, is that, you know, an asteroid of a certain size striking one part of the Earth could be really devastating to life all over the Earth. But what this thing that's happening is... It pretty much seals the fate that within about, gosh, I I don't want to, I don't know exactly, I can't remember uh, the timeline, but it's like five years. In five years, it's pretty, like a 99.9% success rate in guessing that all of life on Earth will be wiped out. Because what's going to happen are these chunks of the moon still in orbit around our planet. We're going to keep hitting each other and breaking the smaller pieces and smaller pieces and eventually over time. It's going to be something called the hard rain is going to happen. All of these different things are going to start making impact. And early on in the book, there are catastrophic pieces of the moon falling into the atmosphere and just wreaking devastation, but not something we can't survive as uh, people all over the world. There are catastrophes here and there. You'd hear about them on the news every day. But what they're saying is going to happen is humanity will cease to exist by this projected date and then what happens next now 
it's a very hopeful outlook in one way. And it's like he paints a picture in where most of the countries of the world put aside all their differences that we see in the news every day. And for this remaining period of time, people are engaged in making sure that we put people up into space, into orbit with the resources to survive and carry on the heritage of humanity. Now, the sad thing is, the prediction also is that it might take 5,000 years for the Earth to be able to support life again. So they're painting this picture. He paints this picture where life is coming to an end. We have the technology and the know-how to put into space all the things we need. Right now, we have the knowledge. It's just getting it done and getting it up there into space. And then he goes on and it becomes a race against time. Only people that are essential, that have essential skills. People from all the countries of the world are able to send people up into the ark. There are these little arklets and it's like this life. It's like, imagine all these little tiny ships that can occasionally join together. They call it the hive or the swarm where they, if they need to, they can separate and move apart to avoid being impacted by something. But for the most part, they can be joined together. And the best and the brightest of, of humanity is sent up into space to begin this project. And it all centers around initially the, the International Space Station. Um, there's an asteroid that they've been doing research with on mining. There's these little nano robots that are very important. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much of it. Let's just say, though, it involves a lot, a lot of planning. One of the things about the book, I did not know how dangerous space was. Um, I probably should have, uh, there's a, there's a lot of things that have to be taken into account. There's the little bolide. You learn about all kinds of, there's like these huge info dumps of information about all the different things that have to be calculated and processed and watched out for from the radiation and the cold and all these little the threats of these little tiny space rocks, bolides, coming and just tearing a hole in the surface of your ship. And, you know, death becomes a common thing on the people that are in the cloud arc trying to set up everything necessary. Um, he deals with lots of issues. One is what would people do? How would people react if they were told that you're all going to die except for these people? He paints this picture where lots of people do their best um, to be supportive. I mean, pretty much all of industry gets together on Earth. Uh, there is conflict. Um, there's some nuclear missiles launched by the United States um, against the people that are trying to halt launches of supplies. Uh, these these all kinds of spaceships uh, were, are being, rockets are being launched up filled with, they call them vitamins. It's just every single kind of thing you could imagine. All kinds of equipment you could imagine. Um, there's, uh, just everything from medical to scientific to manufacturing. Uh, it's all packed into this story. Um, but you know, it's hopeful in that luckily we have so many smart people after they, we get up to about 15, they are able to get about 1500 people up there by the time the hard rain happens. And the whole time I'm hoping there's this whole side story about an internet or this uh, business 
billionaire, multi-billionaire kind of a think a think a Elon Musk kind of guy or a, or Jeff Bezos or somebody like that that has an interest in space where he has his own private space company and all of a sudden he just shows up and then he goes on this side mission to go harness a part of a comet that will bring enough ice to basically because they can break the ice down to its its elements to to provide fuel for this space colony that will last it for hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of years so not trying to spoil too much let's just say that things are going pretty well but then that's because the desire to keep humanity alive is very strong and then you have these very serious people that are all specialists in their own field that are ready they understand the gravity of the situation they're in there is interactions between them that he shows for the most part it's mostly just the first two parts of the book take you to the hard rain and the end of life on earth and then what next but here's the here's the i said it was hopeful that was the hopeful part that we would be able to build things up and possibly hope to survive and succeed as a species as a as a as a people as one human people but people are their own worst enemies we are we see it in the news every day we can't get along our lives do depend on it and we can't get along well one of the things about this agreement that had been signed by all the nations uh, were in an association trying to work towards um building this cloud arc one of the deals was no leader of any um, country, like President of the United States, could not go up into space because basically it would be unfair, and they don't—they're not really the kind of people that are needed for the future. They don't have the specialized training to do what's necessary. Um, big spoiler: Let's just say somebody of a political bent somehow ends up there in the last minute, right when the hard rain's starting, and. You know, that's something they hadn't really had to deal with. And politics being infused into the society that they're trying to build up there. Let's just say things get really, really, really grim. And I'm going to go ahead and say that's the first part of the book. And after this spoiler warning, we're gonna I'm going to go into what happens. Um, if you're interested in the book, I definitely recommend you. Who would be this book is for? Who would it be for? Um, I'm glad I read the book. I'm not going to read it again. Um, it's very technical. And it can be very dry in spots. Um, I went and looked at some other reviews. It's a, it's a huge learning experience, and I loved that. But I would say, how do I break it down? Not insulting at all. I would say, if you like Star Wars, go read The Red Rising Saga by Pierce Brown. If you're a Star Trek fan... If you love engineering, if you love the technical, if you're into technology and computing and all this stuff and space travel, this is the book for you because he gets really detailed about every single maneuver required to move every arclet that is attached together to just try to avoid a random mishap. It, it's so informative. It's so, so well done. He's, he's a brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant a thinker. So yeah, I do recommend it. Um, if you want a lot of um, character development, the, the, there are interesting characters, but there's a lot, not necessarily a lot of very likable ones. 
um, because they're they have to they're making really tough decisions. And what they're doing, they don't always, some, everybody, especially when you get the politician up there, they're not necessarily doing it for the, for the betterment of everybody. They're doing it for themselves. And when you start getting people behaving for self-interest instead of group interest, um, it, it got, it can get really, really ugly, especially when you start trying to pit certain groups of people against other groups of people based on nothing except misinformation. Yeah, that's a, that happens in this book. But yeah, um, so spoiler, from this point on, I'm going to get into uh, what happens at the end of the book briefly. I know I'm going on and on. I've been kind of under the weather, and I've been wanting to do this, so I have a window of opportunity to talk about it, and I'm, I'm just trying to get it out there. Um, it comes down to the fact that this politician, the President of the United States, inserts herself into this uh, society, and she immediately tries to start interfering manipulate and get have influence and she ends up breaking away the majority of all the arclets away from the central group and society breaks down to where there's it, it comes down to where all of the 1500 people left uh, from humanity end up killing each other or letting each other starve out and going so far as the resort to cannibalism just to survive that part was really heartbreaking and there's some horrific things that happen and it comes down to where there is the doctor the the neil degrasse tyson like guy named doob and seven women actually eight women left uh one of the women and the one of the reasons i've the whole time i'm reading the book i'm like why is this called seven eves well it comes down to that there are seven women left capable of reproducing future life and then doob well he dies early after everything gets kind of settled in the in the middle mid part of the book i guess or two-thirds into the book and they're left to their own devices and there are seven eaves and with the technology at hand they were able to start having babies and the one of the keys is each woman was allowed to choose a specific trait that they would pass on to their progeny. And that's where seven races develop, emerge. Um, hope I'm not doing too boring. It's, this, is, this was a huge, huge shift. And then they, each person has all these seven different people. And then the eighth one does matter also because she, she lives for a long time and she impacts a lot of the descendants um, of of the women that are having children, so she even has as a, a not necessarily a race of people, but a fo- group of followers that have similar um, uh, thoughts and ideals as her. And each of these seven women have different ideals and interests. And like one is more of an aggressive type personality that believes action needs to be done. You need to be prepared to do it. They're they're more like the fighter type. And then there's the ones that are more the calmer type that will not let get rattled and so on and so on and so on and then five thousand years later they've succeeded there are billions of people living in space they are using technology to make life relivable um and uh yeah and you, then it kind of gets it becomes a different book this entire thing i've been talking about is basically a preamble for this little shorter book at the end that is a 
speculative fiction about what life would be like 5,000 years after a catastrophe. And I'll say I really, of the two parts, the three parts, the first two parts I take as a preamble, the, sec- the third part I take as, that's very interesting where it goes. It becomes kind of a mission, a secret mission where a person from each race is recruited into this secret mission to go research something. And then they set foot on Earth. They go on this little mission. And then the next big thing happens where your mind's blown. And uh, hopefully if you're just listening this far, you've you've already not caring if it spoils. uh, Please stop if you do not want to know how uh, it turns out. One of the descendants of one of the people on the International Space Station, I believe is living in Alaska, and he was in constant contact with her on the space station. And he kept telling her that he had a group of people. They were trying to work, go into some mines. They were going to try to figure it out. They weren't going to just give up um, and die. And this group of people, they survived through horrific conditions for 5,000 years. And then the earth starts waking back up. The people from the, the people that were the ones from the seven eaves are coming back and doing things and helping. They're helping promote life on Earth um, by seeding the Earth and making the the water uh, capable of. Uh, they're planting stuff in the water to help push it forward. Life, uh, uh, the ability to sustain life. It's really brilliant. Uh, the technical part of the books that talks about all this kind of things. Really brilliant the way he handles it. Um, and then yeah, there there you go. That there's this huge. There's a smaller group of people. We don't know how. We never know how many there are. Um, and then it's they are very resentful of the people that are coming. They look at everybody coming from space as what they we would be. We were aliens to them, and they they are like, why should we let you have our Earth? We stayed here. This is ours. And it comes into a huge more conflict happens. Like I said, it's people being people. Um, conflict. We we find conflict, and but it ends on a it ends on a positive note, despite all the conflict. Um, thinking back, I actually I think I enjoyed the book more than I than I let on earlier. So yeah, maybe maybe someday I will go back and revisit it, um, but not before I look at some of his other books. Um, geez, I'm not working from any notes or anything aside from a list of his books and the dates they were published, and that's all I was really working off of. Plus the uh, this has all been top of my head, and I've, I've, I really should have done this a little bit better because it's such a big book, and there's so many things that happened that, like I said, but I also didn't want to go too great a detail. I will say this: there is there's a great um, separation of the peoples of the seven peoples or races, as they call them, that live in space before they try to start uh, uh, resettling Earth. There was a great split. And the very little is known about one side. It's kind of been a constant civil war, but the civil war has mostly been used through it. Very little violence. Um, they they did try to learn to be to limit the violence as much as possible, especially living in space. So dangerous <laughs> with any kind of weaponry. They uh, pretty much, uh, I think they just did away completely with like nuclear weapons. If I might be mistaking that. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a book filled with surprises. Uh, one another interesting thing is, looking back when you read the first two thirds of the book, there were like little seeds planted all along that were gonna be huge important things for the 
third part of the book. Um, in fact, and this is just me being this is me being hypercritical. If I had read it and it had had a huge a lot of the the technical stuff taken out of it, and it had focused mostly on the interactions with some technical stuff. This is just my little being picky. I'm not going to tell Neil Stevenson what to do. He seems to be working for him. But really, it's quite brilliant how he puts little seeds. And then next thing you know, sorry, I got distracted there. It started raining. Um, not in my house, but really hard outside. Um, next thing you know, when you're reading the reading the the third part of the book, which is, like I said, the futuristic, speculative, really speculative look at our, at what humanity could become, some really weird things happen. And it's like, like I said, the people that, um, that there's the seed planted that they could have survived, but there's also like kind of just with the other hand just wiped away that it's even possible because of such a great devastation happens from the hard rain of when the moon's pieces finally all crash to the surface of the earth and the earth burns. Uh, there's some really poignant parts in, in the description of they're sitting up in these, in these, watching out these windows thousands hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles up in space watching the earth burn it's horrific um yeah it's a good book i'm gonna leave it at that um good book and i will just say one more thing one of the little funny seeds that turns out uh and i'm just gonna say one word or two words mermen and merwomen mermaids and mermen um that (laughs) yeah Interesting, interesting concepts. Big thinker. I'm definitely going to go back. I think the books of his that I'm more interested in are reading the Baroque trilogy, the historical novels that he's written. Um, I'm probably going to put those on my list, and I kind of want to read the one that's called Reamed, and the other one that kind of follows up called Fall that came out this year. They look really interesting to me because you, when you're con- mixing um, the thoughts of like gaming and different things like that in addition to uh the ability to store consciousness um and the things we've seen in different media about that yeah it's a it's a cool book um kind of running out here i want to thank everybody for listening i hope i didn't bore you too much um the initial part where i talk about stevenson is just as much for me to kind of get a grip on what he's done where he's been um He's an interesting guy. I didn't say everything I had learned about him. He's a he's definitely he has actually has a job. A company's hired him as a futurist. He actually did work for um, another company helping design spacecraft. He's uh, apparently a very uh, let's just say he's a very interesting person. And you know, I might want to learn more about him someday. Maybe if I read another book, I might go a little bit deeper into learning a bit more about him. Um, with that being said. Uh, Michael, uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Bibliophile Adventures. Uh, you can email us at 143podcasts at gmail.com. Um, if you want to participate in this little group venture of community of book lovers talking about books, hey, if you've read this book and I missed something or I was off point or you think it was... Uh, no, I don't really want you to tell me if it's, if it's a terrible book, just email me or text me or, I mean, message me on Twitter. That's fine. Because um, I know there's some people that thought it was a terrible book. I read some reviews. I went to Goodreads and saw some different reactions. Some longtime fans thought he kind of missed the boat on this. I can I can see some, there's some criticisms to it. It's not my favorite book. I'm not going to put it in my list of favorite books I've ever read. But it's the big thoughts, the big ideas. It's, it's what he's talking about that 
gets me interested here. I can get behind that part. I can overlook the fact that I don't necessarily love everything he's written in the book. It's what he's doing with it, how he's building the story. Um, very, very inventive, very creative. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll start going on. But yeah, just, uh, if you've read the book and you want to, like, you've read other books by him, please, if you've read all of his books, please do an episode for me summing up why you like certain books. Which ones do you think are the best? And then email it to me or send it to me on Twitter. That's how Michael from Germany sends it to me. He records it. He puts it up into the cloud somewhere and sends me a direct message. And thank you, Michael, for everything you've done doing an episode on this. I've loved everything you're doing. I love where you're heading, when, especially looking at the Dungeons & Dragons uh, Player's Handbook. I love what you're going to hopefully be doing with Penix End Titles and anything else you want to do. I want to thank Martin again. I know he's got some things in the works. I'm hoping there are other people out there either working up the courage or just trying to find the time. Believe me. Hey, the only way this podcast is working is because I've got other people participating because I, it's very hard for me to find the time to sit down uninterrupted and, you know, look at this. I'm almost at 48 minutes. Um, it's very hard for me to get the time to do that, to, to do this podcast or to do a podcast with my buddy Paul or the podcast I do with my, my cousin Dave and cousin Steve. Um, it's getting harder and harder. Uh, but I, I think it's important because I, I'm sharing this because it's something I've enjoyed. I'm sharing, putting these ideas out there. Maybe you can recommend other books that kind of hit me up and send us messages, um, books that are similar to this, that delve into this. Uh, I remember reading some Goodreads things saying, if you like the idea behind this, read this other person's book because they deal with it better. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, 143 podcast at gmail.com or just look up bibliophile i think it's still bibliophile labyrinth adventures on twitter and i want to thank you all again and have a good night or good day or whatever it is you're about to have thanks Uh, before i go i do want to leave you with one quote from the book and this kind of sums up personal thoughts of my own personal thoughts about the way we are in the world that i live in and quote we're not hunter-gatherers anymore. We're all living like patients in the intensive care unit of a hospital. What keeps us alive isn't bravery or athleticism or any of those other skills that were valuable in a caveman society. It's our ability to master complex technological skills. It's our ability to be nerds. We need to breed nerds. And so, from the words of Neil Stevenson, I'm gonna, I'll leave you with that. 